Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Murking fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about science, research, and the physiology of weight gain and loss I've been thinking about personal power and the fact that when we understand the mechanics of something We can, with confidence, become a magician My guest today is Stephen J. Simpson, Ph.D. He is the co-author with David Robenheimer, Ph.D., of the astounding new book, Eat Like the Animals, What Nature Teaches Us About the Science of Healthy Eating. Stephen is a professor and academic director of the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney, and he is the type of scientist that makes us proud of and confident in science. Welcome, Stephen, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Oh, thank you, Ellie, and thank you for that kind introduction. Very kind. Well, first off, I just want to say job well done. And and I was really debating. I'm like, you know, maybe the, the whole interview should just be to everyone listening, just read this book. Like, that's, that's, that's the extent of it. Um, it just, it just it was, and is just so fantastic. And the, the level of um, effort and energy and in intelligence that you both put into your research and then writing the book is, is really overwhelming. Well, thank you. It's a it's it's a thirty year journey, so there's there's a loss in there. Yeah, well, one thing I thought about that was that the, the life that you have led as a research scientist is not, I think, what most people would imagine. Um, you spend a lot of time outside and, and traveling the far reaches of the world. I almost said to, 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 to the corners of the world, I'm like, do people still say that? I think we all realize that there aren't corners. <laughs> that's right, that's right. No, exactly, and um, put it this way, yeah, it's funny. Um, if you'd gone back 30 years and had asked young David Rovenheimer and me what we were going to do with our research lives, and we'd said to you, well, we're going to start looking at locusts and ultimately try and solve the human obesity epidemic, I think we would have been laughed at, and certainly nobody would have funded it. So it just shows how you can start somewhere in science, and if you follow... The, the way the story flows, you can end up in, in really extraordinary places, literally as well as metaphorically, you know, in the corners of the uh, world, in, in jungles in Borneo, in um, all sorts of really exciting places, but also deep in the laboratory, um, slaving away over the data. Um, and you can, through your ideas, really shift and change the way we think about really complex things about the human condition. Well, and I don't think you would have believed it either, the two of you, that the that the episodes that would have evolved um, from the start to the end would have been what they were. And, and even the, the experiments and the research, you wouldn't have really been able to anticipate what those experiments were, were going to be and where they would have led. No, exactly. So each each step leads to the next, and you just have to be open to going in the most interesting direction, even if it seems completely unlikely. And one of the things about the book is that it, it gives you a bit of a scientific detective story, which has that flavor, doesn't it? There's a bit of personal drama. There's insight into what it really means um, to be a scientist, the real-life practice of science, and as well as the extraordinary stories from nature. 
Well, I thought so of we, that. We tried to really create the aha moment. Well, and the, the best example of the uh, scientific method in practice. And I mean, I, I, I just wanted to stand up and cheer when at the moment of sort of discovery, you didn't say, oh, okay, well, now let's wrap up and go home. Now, let, you said instead, let's now make sure that all of the other possible explanations for this aren't true. And, and <laughs> you know, you stand up and cheer because that isn't always the way definitely in, in science and, and in medicine, for sure. No, that's right. And, and there's this sort of caricature, isn't there, of the scientist as somebody wearing a white coat who's, who's incredibly logical and proceeds one logical step to the other. Science is not like that. It's much more... I guess it's much more akin to the creative arts. So you're coming up with new ideas, new concepts, you're testing them, you're reliant on the data to tell you whether you're right or wrong and you can't you, you, you can't disagree with the reality. So if you think something ought to happen and you do the experiment and it doesn't, it's kind of disappointing, but that's in the nature of it, you then have to think again. And as you go through the process, it's a, it's a very organic and creative social process. It's not clinical and um, objective in the sense that we often think of the white-coated researcher sitting in the lab, um, you know, pouring over their data, coming up with really um, logical conclusions and proceeding in that sort of robotic way. It's a it's a deeply human way of going about things, being a, being a real scientist. And trying to get the flavor of that was, was part of um, why we wrote the book, actually, to get across the drama and the excitement and the disappointments of being a scientist. Well, and I think also the integrity that you both have shines through because I think that's the differentiator between a good scientist and a poor scientist is one may feel that because of who, where their funding's coming from or because of the hypothesis that they um, established that they have to prove a certain outcome and, and it's much more difficult to let the ego, you know, stand away and, and maybe go with what actually is happening. And so with that, let's start with Stella, the baboon, um, who it turns out is like us, uh, was an expert in nutrition and, and was able to master the complexity of combining many foods to create a balanced diet. And we learn as the story goes on that even slime mold um, does that, uh, which I thought was was incredible to, to learn about. Um, your experiments that you are talking about in the book, they start with insects. Um, then, and the idea that they will eat an identical balance of protein and carbs, regardless of which foods are offered. Um, where yeah. did you get the idea to start working with insects? And um, then we'll talk about why you brought in additional species to test the results. Yes, so, so the original decision to work on insects came from a very simple place, and that is that I and both myself and David were entomologists. So we've grown up studying and working on the science of insects. So that was our that was our subject. That was that was the area and the, the groups of animals that we worked on. And in particular, um, I had early on a, a real interest in locusts, which are these mass swarming grasshoppers that invade vast areas of North Africa. In fact, there's 
just at the moment there's been a major plague in North Africa of, of the desert locust, which is one of the uh, the plagues, biblical plagues, actually. So these were animals that I was deeply interested in as an entomologist. And they were, they were the sort of animal that people considered as being um, totally without boundaries when it came um, when it comes to their appetite. So, you know, you've all seen, everybody's seen the story of the, the, the swarm of locusts devastating areas, stripping all the vegetation and leaving the, the, the land barren. So the very idea that an animal like that could be making careful nutritional decisions seems kind of odd. You know, why would this animal that, that, that is known for being voracious, why would you consider that it would have the, the capacity to balance its nutrition? And I was interested right at the outset of looking at the mechanisms of appetite, what controls what they eat and when they eat. And David and I started to work together to ask the specific question, do they know which nutrients they need at any point or, or do they just get hungry? You know, we had this idea of hunger being a single thing. You either feel hungry or you feel full. And we, we started to work with locusts and showed very quickly that actually they don't have a, a single hunger or a single appetite they have different appetites for different important nutrients. And amongst those are protein and carbohydrate. And they're the two um, significant macronutrients, as they're called in, in the diet of a, a plant-feeding locust. Fat is the other, but it's um, less important to a locust because it's principally protein and carbs that, that yield their energy. We also showed that they had a salt appetite, so they know when they need salt. And they're able to choose the foods that they need at that particular moment to achieve their requirements for protein, for carbohydrate, um, and for salt. And to do that, they make really sophisticated food choice decisions and you can challenge them in the lab with all sorts of food combinations and they'll pick the right one to balance their diet to the point which will allow them to grow and reproduce most successfully. Um, and that was, a, that was a really significant insight because it showed that appetite isn't a single thing and that these appetite systems have evolved to help animals, to work together to help animals to balance their diet um, in an appropriate food environment. And that was really the beginning. And um, having done that, we then went across um, a whole range of species. And as you say, that, that includes baboons and slime molds and cats and dogs and wild apes and you name it, all manner of species. And lo and behold, they all have these same appetites. There's these fundamental, rather small number of appetites, and between them, they help animals to balance their diets in a natural food environment or in an appropriate food environment. And that was really the beginning of the story that's led us to start considering us as a species and ask the question, why did we go so badly wrong? 
And you break that down into two elements, the idea that one is our body needs to tell us what to eat, and then our bodies also need to tell us how much to eat, and that humans use a profile of food to assess its nutrient content, which is so cool, um, and that there are five appetites that drive us, protein, carbs, fat, sodium, and calcium. So like this is all built in, um, as it was with the locusts yep. and all, all the other animals, Um and locusts, I learned, are just super cool as well. They've like got this, this um, skill of 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 sort of uh, waiting like the clones for Order sixty six to engage, <laughs> programmed into their heads. <laughs> so I thought that that's like Transformers. So those those are awesome. And then the other one I think that just struck me was the Australian tam or wallaby. I had to read it like five times. That they have a dedicated nipple for each of their babies. Um, that they carry because the babies would be at different ages and they wouldn't they produce a unique cocktail for each one of the nutrients. So it's just like if we we uh, learn about things like this, it's like we can we can trust. We can we can let go and trust um, that that that's all planned out. Uh, and so that's where the turn kind of happens with humans that that in some way we've lost this ability um, or have we for sensing and responding that this innate skill. And so I'm wondering like has it been driven out of us? Um, by sort of our, our cultural upbringing, you know, being told not to trust our bodies when we're hungry or what we feel like eating or our desires. Because when you took the sort of working on the experiments with humans and left them to their own devices, they actually did choose the proper balance of foods. That's right. So the, the really good news story in the whole book is that exactly as you say, Ellie, we... We, like other animals, have these exquisite appetite systems. And as you say, there's, there's five, protein, fat, and carbohydrate, the three big macronutrients. And on top of that, two of the important mineral nutrients, sodium or salt uh, and calcium, which we need, of course, for bones and all manner of other things. So those five are able to capture the complete balance of all the dozens of different nutrients that, that we, like other animals, need in our diet if we're going to thrive and prosper. Um, now, why have we gone wrong? Why has there been the obesity epidemic over the last 50 years? Is it because we've lost those basic mechanisms or is there something else? And, and the good news is that we haven't lost them. They're still there. The problem is that we've taken those beautifully evolved and regulatory appetite systems that should work together to help us balance our diet, and we've put them in an inappropriate food environment. We've built a food environment which essentially hacks this basic biology. It means it doesn't work for us. In fact, it, it works for um, the industrialized food industry rather than for our health. Um, and the reason for that is a big chunk of the story. It's, it's explaining how we changed and manufactured foods such that they become irresistible and they really mess with these appetite systems and encourage us to eat things that we shouldn't. And then we get trapped in our own biology. So the good news is that those appetites are still there. The bad news is that like a fish out of water, we've put them in the wrong environment and they're unable to do what they 
are supposed to be to guide us to a, a balanced diet. So you say in relation to the target diet that the solution is simple and elegant and exists inside every living thing. And it seems that the the key to that balance and that elegance is protein and that protein has a power to leverage everything else we eat. So let's let's unpack that a bit. I want to just read a quote that, yeah. that you have. You said, in a protein-poor but energy-rich food environment, humans will overeat carbs and fats to try to reach their protein target. However, when the only available diet is high in protein, humans will under-consume carbs and fats. And so I'm just thinking your whole book could have been this, just reprinted over and over and over and over for 100 pages. And, <laughs> and, 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 and that was all we really need to understand and that once we get that our lives will will all change for the better um but uh, you made it much more interesting and compelling so so let's talk about how you through your research unpacked the importance of protein well that that goes back to locusts again and as, as we were saying locusts have different appetites for protein for carbohydrates and salt and that's fine if you give the animal an appropriate food environment, those appetites will help it select foods in a way that will balance its diet. But what happens if you take those appetites and you put them in an imbalanced environment, one where the the nutrient balance that's available across the foods that the animal has in its environment um, would take it to a different mixture of nutrients, not one that would support optimal health. So to, to answer that question, what we did was set up an experiment and we described this right near the beginning where we put locusts on a whole range of different diets that differed in the balance of protein to carbohydrate, the two key macronutrients for which we knew the animal has inclined appetites. And what we found was that if you, if you change that ratio, the animal will eat until it gets the right amount of protein, and abandon caring about how much carbohydrate it eats. And so what that means is if you put the animal on a protein-concentrated diet, it'll end up eating fewer calories because it needs to eat less to get to its target intake of protein. And on the other hand, if you dilute protein with, with extra carbs, it'll have to keep eating and eating and eating to get to its protein target, and having done that, it will have overconsumes energy and, and it gets obese, surprisingly. So you can have a fat locust. Um, and that we call protein leverage. So what it indicated is that the locust, at least, cares more about getting its protein and the target level right than it does about how many calories it eats overall. And we realized that that was a really potentially a really powerful idea because it it would mean that if you put the animal in a world where protein was becoming diluted, then you would drive obesity in a population of locusts. So then we started to test this idea in a whole range of other species, including ourselves. And initially, we, we ran a, a pilot experiment where we took um, some students and their friends up into the Swiss Alps and put them in a chalet and provided them with foods that we, um, buffets of food items that we'd manipulated um, and showed the same thing. So we too have a strong appetite for protein, 
And if we cause our appetites to have to compete with one another by putting us in an imbalanced feed environment, then we'll prioritize protein. We'll eat until we get our protein target, even if that means eating way too many or way too few calories. And that, of course, depends on how concentrated protein is in the food supply. And it's that um, discovery which we called the protein leverage hypothesis, um, which we propose may have explained or may help explain the emergence of the global obesity epidemic. And everything that we've discovered and others around the world essentially since that time is, is building now to, to powerfully support that idea. Um, and it's kind of revolutionary in that if you, if you go back to the arguments over the last 40 years around what's caused the obesity epidemic, it, it's clear that we've eaten more calories, we've expended fewer, but we've principally eaten more calories. That's why the world's got heavier. It's just continued to eat more. Those calories have been mainly in the form of fats and carbohydrates, industrially produced fats and carbohydrates, whereas protein intake has stayed really pretty constant over all that time. And not surprisingly, people had said, well, if protein hasn't gone up, then it isn't the cause of the obesity epidemic, it's fats. And other people said, no, it's carbs. And so there's been this kind of pointless furious argument for the last 40 years about is it fats or is it carbs that's caused obesity. And what we pointed out was actually the fact that protein has stayed the same may be the clue. If we're controlling the amount of protein we eat and protein is becoming diluted in the food supply, and it has been over the last 40 years through fat and carbs that have been brought in in the industrialized food supply, then protein is driving obesity and our effort to keep it constant is what's causing the problem. And that was that sort of turned on its head everything about what we understand around the um, dietary causes of obesity. Well, I think it has and it is, right? Because it is so revolutionary. I'm sure it wasn't very popular. And it's so admirable because it's looking at the why, you know, you think, oh, it's not protein because that's stayed stable. So let's look at everything else. But when you ask the why um, has protein stayed stable uh, with the others vary, varying and, and that the focus is not on calorie intake, but maybe, you know, why does calorie intake vary and what's the purpose? And, and so it, it's beyond revolutionary, and I just think also, you know, in science, it's got to be so brave because you guys were not popular <laughs> with your new approach um, and your new perspective. No, that's uh, that's always the way when you when you come in to a field, and in this case, human nutrition, and you say, "Hang on, everyone, we think you've missed something," which is when you think about it, sort of obvious. And it changes everything about the way you think about the world um, as a profession. And you're entomologists, so you come from um, working on 
lowly animals that nobody who in human nutrition would consider even to eat, let alone anything else. And so, yes, it, it, there was a degree of resistance initially. It's, it's interesting, it wasn't resistance in the sense of people saying, no, you're wrong. People just didn't know what to do with it. Well, yeah, they probably didn't like it either, right? Because it was messing with their their research and their and and entire industries that were based on the idea of and and you know food production and diet um, the diet industry, which is enormous, um, based on this idea of, of focusing on calories. And so this is going to, I think, shake up a lot of people and get their attention. You also say in the book that life. Lifespan has virtually nothing to do with total calories consumed and everything to do with the ration of proteins to carbs you eat. So, yes, so that, that, that's a really good, and that's another really important point. Yeah. And so you started to see this when you were working with the mice and, and you had validated the, the, um, the, the, theory on the protein intake and the high carbs um, with some mice getting fat and some getting extremely lean. And you started then to look at the the next connector to this, which is the relationship between lifespan and reproduction. You know, why would there be advantages to being lean? And and are there times when we don't want to be, which I think goes very much against all of our our cultural um, mores? Yes. Yes, so the 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 key here is, um, and again, this is a question we ask as biologists: if if we care so deeply, not just us, a whole range of animals, about not only eating too little protein, but also eating too much. So the the whole idea that that animals like us regulate precisely how much of protein we eat. That implies two things. One is that there's a cost to eating too little. We know that. That's very simple. If you eat too little protein, you can't grow, you can't maintain your tissues, you can't reproduce, all the things that biology um, cares about. But, but why not? Why do we care so little about or so much about eating too much? So we're willing to... In, end up eating too few calories and lose weight, um, which is makes no sense if you look in the evolutionary history of animals. No animal has has gone out of its way to lose weight. Um, it just doesn't make sense. We need to in our modern environment. That's a different question. So this there, there must therefore we we reasoned be some cost to eating too much protein. So if you get the right amount, perfect. If you eat too little, that's no good. What's the cost of eating too much? And can we can we actually measure and map that? And so we set about initially before we started with mice, we, we began with a, a huge experiment looking at fruit flies, um, back to insects. And the fruit flies are um, a terrific model system that's used by geneticists and has been for, for decades. And it, it, they don't live very long, and they don't eat very much. And you can you can run a, a big experiment with a thousand flies, each on a different diet, and measure how long they live and how many eggs they lay. And having done that, we showed very clearly that if they eat a low protein, high carbohydrate diet, they lived longest. 
they ended up a bit sad, but they lived longest and they were actually, their markers of health were best. But if you put them on a higher protein, lower carb diet, they had, they laid more eggs, but they didn't live as long. And that sort of indicated that you need protein for reproduction, but too much protein, particularly in midlife and towards life is not good. Um, and, and so we wanted to understand that further and see whether it was generalizable to other species. So we did a huge experiment that we described in the, the book on mice and showed the same thing, that when you're a mouse and you're on a low-protein, higher-carbohydrate diet, you end up healthier in middle life um, and in early-late life, and you live longer than you do on a high-protein, low-carb diet, but you'll have fewer babies. And so there's a, a trade-off. There's a trade-off between reproduction and longevity. And we're able then to delve into the deep into the biochemistry and the molecular biology of, of aging and how it's influenced by protein and the ratio of protein to carbohydrate. And that that has become um, a real enterprise. We're continuing um, right now, actually. We've got some other huge experiments underway on um, these mechanisms. And these mechanisms in our physiology turn out to be universal. They're found in a yeast cell or in a worm or in a fly or in a mouse or in a person. And there's this sort of fundamental substrate metabolic substrate, as it's called, um, that controls the rate at which we age and our health during particularly um, mid-life and early late life. Um, and it's, it's influenced, powerfully influenced by protein, carbohydrate, and fat, of course, as well. But the, the ratio of those things, you can dial them up or down and you can create um, a longer living mouse or a diabetic mouse or a lean mouse um, or an obese, unhealthy mouse. You can, by fiddling the dials or twiddling the dials for those three nutrient groups, you can end up with all manner of different outcomes. And that's actually really exciting because it gives us the prospect of um, using diet to achieve different outcomes in human health as well. Well, and that's where I think the magician aspect comes in, because you were able to create um, health or disease in the mice by tweaking the foods you gave them, and you you could get locusts to eat five times more or less than they otherwise would, uh, based on the combination of foods you were providing. That's right. So these appetite systems are responding powerfully. So if you dilute nutrients by adding more and more fiber in the diet of a locust, you can add five times as much fiber and the animal will eat five times more food and it'll end up getting the same amount of nutrients. So so these these systems are strongly responsive to our food environment. And so the next jump then you make is is looking at um, how 
the food environments that we're in, and you talk a lot about you you can't study the the animal and their eating habits without studying their evolution and the food environment. And and the second half of the book, or maybe the last quarter, is really focused on how humans' food environment has changed and why maybe we've become at odds with our own nature and that the, this food environment has become more toxic. And you talk about the, the shifts throughout history and that a major one happened 12,000 years ago, and then farming was the next one. And here was farming, we're thinking this was going to be this great shift, people were going to meant to have, you know, better lives, improved health. And that wasn't the case at the beginning. And, and I'm thinking about our most recent shift to technology, and what that was meant to bring us. And one has to wonder if maybe also, we're in that transition period where it is not an improved existence at this exact point. But we hope that as with farming, we will adapt and, and make the best of it. Um so what was that most recent shift that's really put us at odds with our nature? Yeah, so the, the big shift, and it's the biggest, as you called it, a nutrition transition. It's the biggest one in the entire history of humanity. And that's the industrialization of the food system. And the reason that's really important comes back to, again, to these appetites and the way they uh, designed to work in natural food environments. And the reason you can get by with only five appetites to balance your entire diet is because those appetites rely on there being correlations between other nutrients in foods and other things like fiber in foods. Natural foods, if you get the right amount of protein, carbohydrate, and fat, you'll end up with all the other things you need for free because they'll come along by being correlated in natural food. So if, you, if you're feeding on um, plant material to get enough protein and carbohydrate, you're going to get plenty of fiber at the same time. And that serves as a, a powerful part of your appetite control system. And it feeds your microbiota in your gut. And it's, it's an integral part of everything. But you don't need to control or measure fiber, you measure the other things and fiber comes along for free. What we've done in the industrialization of the food system is to take foods and process them to such a degree that we've broken all of these correlations. And so in the extreme, what we've done in, in what's called the ultra-processed foods is to smash them up into such um, basic chemical components and then put them back together again in combinations that have never been seen in the history of humanity. So you can put fat and sugar together in mixtures that evoke what's called the bliss response. You know, it's the most powerfully palatable combination you can imagine. And that's simply because sugar and fat ancestrally were rare in our environment. They hardly ever came mixed together in a single um, mixture, certainly not chilled down and churned and turned into industrially produced ice cream. But when you do that, you end up with this fabulously super palatable combination that our, our biology has never seen. So that's going to encourage you to eat more than you otherwise would of those sorts of foods. And that's going to dilute protein in your um, diet and you'll have to eat more calories. Another example, a really beautiful example, is when, when your protein appetite is telling you you need to eat more protein, 
you'll become um, attracted to and start to crave savoury flavours. What the Japanese call umami flavours. And those savoury flavours are the cues that we've evolved to associate with high-protein foods. So when you feel like something savoury, it's your body saying you need more protein. Now, if you happen to have to hand a packet of um, corn chips with barbecue flavouring on them, that is a protein decoy. We've designed it to taste savoury and taste delicious and when you need protein, you're going to crave that and you'll eat that. It'll be, it'll be essentially irresistible. And you will have just delivered a bomb of um, fats and carbohydrates with hardly any, if any, protein. So your protein appetite will be sitting there thinking, well, I haven't had the protein yet. I need to eat something else. And, and so there's an example of how the industrialization of food, and particularly the ultra-processing of it, has really subverted, hacked our basic appetite systems. Things too like sugar-sweetened beverages, um, they didn't really exist. Honey is a, is, a, is a fantastically desirable component of the diets of all human populations for millennia, but um, certainly carbonated soft drinks weren't. And... Again, you, 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 you're mixing up two things. Um, you're mixing up hydration you need to drink and you're adding calories to it. So by drinking for water, you're getting excess calories at the same time. It's another example of putting things together in the wrong combination and how that messes with our appetites and our biology and leads us to eat more than we need. I had to stop mid-book and go open my freezer and look at the ice cream um, ingredients that we had. I was <laughs> just hoping that they weren't the ones that you delineated in the book because I thought we will never eat ice cream again. It's terrifying, the the chemicals that are that are in those. So, ugh, oh, Haagen-Dazs, at least some of the flavors, they're, they're still pure. So was, I, I was rescued. Um, you say we become overweight because our appetite for protein is stronger than our ability to limit fat and carb intake. Take. So when protein is diluted by fats and carbs, as it is in ultra-processed foods, our appetite for it overwhelms the mechanisms that normally would tell us to stop eating fats and carbs. As a result, we eat more than we should, more than is good for us. And I, I like to call it the trifecta of the ultra-processed foods that determine our, our health's downfall, which is you know this abundant source of energy, low in protein, high in fats and carbs. And then the the culmination of the book and also of the importance of this information um, and you had said that the awareness was the major goal of writing the book and and it is definitely the first step but I think the the saving grace is the awareness that um, in the examples that you give about Mary and Matthew that these can once we have the understanding and the knowledge of how the mechanics are working that we can easily tweak these diets to lose the weight, um, as you did with the mice, by adjusting, understanding our uh, the the protein target that naturally exists, and then maybe the one that we've established in um, either from birth, which was also ex- incredibly interesting how that can be established, but also through our behavior. And you talk about Matthew being a, a football player, and that he had through his um, diet and through his exercise had established for himself a much higher protein target. And then when he went to work after college 
college and was not exercising and was eating very different foods that like that there was no way pretty much he he was going to not get fat and that it wasn't going to just keep continuing until he made an adjustment so maybe you could talk about that a little bit yes it's a, that's a that's a really important point um, wrapped up in that and that is if your protein target is set higher than it should be um, or, or just higher it could be required to be higher if you're an athlete for example you need more protein because you're building more muscle but it does mean that to get to a higher protein target you need to eat more calories on a low protein junk food um, diet and, and it's the, the geometry of it, the maths of it is actually really simple and it, it's frightening. So if your protein target goes up just a little bit, you have to eat hugely more calories to get to it. Now, what that means is that unless you're using those calories, and in the case of Matthew, the example there was to show that he was, you know, he was a football player, he was doing a lot of um, training and he was he was building muscle, he was incredibly active, using lots and lots of calories um, in, 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 his, um, in his sport and in, in his general life. Um, if he suddenly became sedentary and he, he went to work in, 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 a, in an office job, so what happened to Matthew, um, he, he then stopped his elite sport his body's still craving that extra protein, but he's not needing the extra calories. And that means that particularly if he lets his diet slip because he's now living independently, he's got a job, he's trying to balance um, his career and his relationships and perhaps thinking about having a family, all the other things that, 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 that enrich but also <laughs> make your life busy in that period then the risk is that his body's going to be driving him to eat way more calories than he needs because his protein target, for a, for a period at least, is going to be set too high. And any, any event that causes, or any process that causes the protein target to be set too high will put you at risk of um, obesity and certainly overeating in a low-protein world. We've just actually started to put together the pieces. It's not in the book, but I think it's a really exciting um, idea. We're using this idea now to apply to the weight gain that happens in women around menopause. Um, and it turns out that what happens during the, the sort of menopausal period is that there's a, a rapid loss of lean mass, So, and that's presumably to do with hormonal changes. And in other words, women then start to burn their own protein and lose lean mass. That's going to switch up your protein target. You need to eat more protein because you're burning it um, to maintain yourself, and that's going to promote overeating, um, particularly in a world where your diet is, um, is, is not as, as healthy as it might be. So the idea translating now into a different context is, is again proving to be very powerful. So that's a, a known transition in, in the life course. Menopause is associated with rapid weight gain in, in many women. It's a 
very difficult period because you don't you don't know why you're gaining weight and you don't seem to be eating more. Um, something doesn't seem to be um, right. There's a shift, and if that shift is driven by your creating appetite, it all falls into place. So there's another example. Um, and, and another you mentioned, which I think is a really uh, important one, is setting the protein target too high in very early life. Even in utero, um, we've got experiments at the moment in mice showing that if you put the mother on a too high protein diet during pregnancy, her babies are born with a higher protein target, and that makes them more likely to get overweight and obese on a low-protein diet when they themselves wean and become independent animals. And the other um, story that sort of fits is the relationship between high-protein infant formula feeding and childhood and adolescent obesity. Again, it would make sense in terms of the idea that that if you're on a a too high protein diet, your body gets used to it and requires it, and that puts you at greater risk of obesity in the low protein world. Yeah, that was so interesting. I thought there's definitely going to be some more research on that. That, that why um, breast milk has that lower uh, protein um, target than maybe was expected, the seven percent. I want to end with talking about what you just brought up with. I think is a miraculous finding around menopause and and the connection with the story of Mary in the book because it really does focus on, I think, so many of the other elements that surround overeating and weight gain. Um, and, and we've, of course, focused on the physiological aspect, um, and that's one that can be controlled. And there's this tricky space because, you know, overeating can, can have an emotional co- component um, and related to one's sense of body image and self-confidence and all sorts of other trauma and other things. But to know that by, by shifting um the the protein balance that that can be enough to get one with with work and concentration back to this place where we can just simply trust our appetites and in connection with that the flip side that once one is out of balance there's so much shame um in our culture especially about being overweight and it being the the person's fault for not having self-control or or not um you know being smart enough or or good enough or strong enough or all of these things and your story about Mary shows so clearly that once we're out of balance we've gotten on this train that without understanding the mechanisms of what's running the train it's nearly impossible to get off and it only is going to keep going and we're only going to keep gaining weight and our appetite is only going to keep growing um so I just thought that was in in all regards such an important story yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And and uh, one of the things that we're dedicated to here at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney is, um, which is a, a an institute that I lead and David Robenheimer works at as well, where we're, we're looking at the full complexity of obesity and chronic disease and, and appreciating that it's not just the fault of the individual. Because what you're doing, exactly as you say, is, is you're fighting profoundly powerful biology. And you never win. Um, willpower is, is one thing. 
biology is going to always beat you. And and if that's then associated with shame and blame, um, either guilt and shame and stigma um, imposed from within or without, then that's totally counterproductive. It's not helping, it's not admitting that the problem is the mismatch between our biology and our environment. And if you understand that biology, and that's what we've set out to do here, to give you some really sort of fundamental, uh, a new means with which um, to, to look at the world in, in relation to your diet. If you understand that biology, you're empowered to be able to make the subtle tweaks that are required to have your biology work for you, not against you. And that's really the message, isn't it, from the book. And Mary is an example of how, actually how simple it can be. You don't need to radically alter your diet. Um, in fact, the likelihood is if you do, you're going to um, cause different problems and you'll fight biology in a different way and you'll end up defeated and, and depressed about you tried but you didn't succeed. Maybe it's some moral failing on my part, etc., etc. We need to break people out of that and have them understand their biology in a way that, that empowers them and empowers you to take advantage of your appetite systems and to use your brain to reconstruct your food environment, um, not to count calories and do all the other things that we've had to try and do to see whether we can control the situation. I think it's a, a more than a message. It's a miraculous gift that you and David have given um, the readers of this book. And, and given science, it it's it's a terrible analogy, but I was thinking I couldn't come up with a better one. But it's like thinking about electricity. And you think you can sit in a room and scream and yell and run around and try all these other things to try to get the light to come on. But until you understand how electricity works and that you need to flip the switch because that's connected to a set of wires that's then going to ignite the, the energy to, to turn the light on you're really lost and so I really think it it's um you know I'm, I may be over touting but it really is I think uh beyond revolutionary it, it, it is an incredible shift and it, and um it's super exciting so thank you so much for the book uh eat like the animals what nature teaches us about the science of healthy eating and thank you so much for joining me today on that got me thinking and, and helping us get the word out Oh, thank you, Ellie, and I, I really, really appreciate those kind comments, and I love your electricity analogy. I think that's a really good one. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, and enjoy your day, as I will enjoy my evening. Oh, oh thank you, Ellie. I really appreciated that. That was, that was fun. I hope, I, hope, I hope it was all right. Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful to talk to you, and I really enjoyed reading the book. It really is a wonderful read oh, beyond beyond all that's in it. Just the, the it's incredibly well written and, and it's very enjoyable and entertaining, captivating. So so thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right,